Good morning again. Uh, my name is Tad Anderson. I am the uh, lead teaching pastor here at the Hub City Church. And uh, man, just thanks for this opportunity this morning to uh, deliver the Word of God to you. Thank you to all who contributed to the uh, pastor appreciation gift that uh, my wife and I were, were given this morning. I, I just want to say it, it's a great privilege in my life to be uh, your pastor, and um, I don't take that lightly. Uh, it means a lot that you would even sit here this morning to hear me deliver God's word to you. It's such a humbling thing. And so, uh, man, who am I to, for that great privilege? So, thanks be to God for that, and, and thank you guys for your love uh, to, to my family So for many years. But uh, anyway, let me get to the announcements here before I get all emotional. Um, we, we do have our men's, our, our men's camping trip coming up. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's about... It's about half filled up so far, so that's, it's going well on that, on that front. But I'll also say, if you want to join us, make sure you do sign up for that. Uh, we will do some manly stuff, like you know, make a fire and eat meat and, and all that. But uh, Lewis Miller, uh, dear brother in the Lord and West Regional Catalyst for the Florida Baptist Convention, will be there to give us a, an encouraging word uh, as, as men. And so, yeah, sign up for that. We'd love to have you with us. It's on uh, November 10th. That's a Friday. Uh, it'll go through to... Uh, the next morning, obviously, around 11 a.m. So um, the, the next thing is, I, I did mention this last week, and I am just mentioning it and passing again to you so that you're preparing for this. I uh, won't give you all the logistics now, but we will do our Thanksgiving outreach that we do uh, every year as a church. It's, it's one of our biggest and, and most enjoyable outreaches. Uh, and really the vision for it is the fact that, and we've said this every year, we have uh, Thanksgiving all the time, don't we, church? <laughs> we're, we're Christians. Uh, we don't need a holiday for that. Um, we love the holiday, but we don't need a holiday for that. Um, so every Thanksgiving, we try to serve others and give them uh, the greatest possible thing that there is to be thankful for, which is uh, not turkey, but the gospel, uh, Jesus, okay? And so uh, we do prepare a lot of meals, and we go out in our city to areas where uh, we know that there are people who may otherwise not have Thanksgiving meals, and we use that as an opportunity to serve them, uh, love them, and share the love of Christ uh, in the gospel, uh, with them. So hope you guys will consider joining us for that. Uh, we're, we're just working out a few logistics, and probably by next week or something like that, uh, we'll, we'll have all of that ready to lay out for you, let you know how you can jump in and, and be a part of that. So, uh, all right. We are uh, in the midst of a teaching series based out of the Old Testament book of Genesis. It's called That's Messed Up, and it's focused on the foundational gospel realities of sin and redemption. I have been told that uh, we are a church that addresses sin maybe more than some other churches. Uh, and so each week in this series, I have made it a point to reiterate why we would base an entire series on different aspects of sin. It's, I promise you, I assure you, um, it's not because I have some weird kind of, you know, I get some kind of weird masochistic pleasure out of talking about challenging topics in front of people. It is not that. Um, it's not fun for me often to talk about these things. But it's because the Bible is one unified story of how God rescues and redeems his people from their sin. Right? And so if you don't understand that, then you are going to have a deficient view of Scripture. But number two is... Um, Jesus tells us this in, in, in many different ways, but the, the deeper and more comprehensive our understanding of our own sin, the greater possibility there is for our humility and capacity to love Christ 
and cherish the gospel, okay? Jesus told the Pharisees in uh, Luke chapter 5, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, lest anyone misunderstand Jesus here, he often says things in, in these kinds of ways, you know, where we need to really sit and, and wrestle with it. He's not saying that there are good people and there are bad people, and only the bad ones need a savior. Okay? He's saying there are bad people who are deceived into thinking they are good. And there are bad people who realize they're bad and humbly look for help. And so in light of this, one preacher said, uh, you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. Okay, And that's really one of the big goals of this series, to um, expose our lost, broken condition due to the spiritual cancer of sin in our hearts so that... So that we can turn and cling to Jesus in repentance and experience redemption, the redemption that only he offers. But anyway, each week we're addressing a different situation uh, in, in Genesis that highlights a different way that our sin messes things up, if you will. Um, and this week we're moving on to the topic of family dysfunction that we get insight into from Isaac and Rebecca. Last week uh, we discussed the 25 Uh, years of waiting that Abraham and his wife Sarah endured for their promised son. And uh, Isaac is that promised son. He he grows up, he gets married, uh, he has two sons of his own with his wife Rebecca. And because sin is hereditary, we see that he and his family have some sin issues of their own as well. Genesis 27 picks up towards the end of Isaac's life, uh, where we see a a pretty well-known but messed up story unfolds. So let's read some of it here, uh, and then we'll pray, and we'll see what we can draw out of it. We're going to pick it up in Genesis 27, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 24 if you'd like to follow along. It says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older, older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I, have, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the, before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare, prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall, be, I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, 
Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Let's pray. Father, God, you are good. And we thank you for this cool fall morning to come together as the body of Christ to make much of him through our singing of praises and exulting in the truths of the gospel through the reading of your word. God, I can't help but think of how different this morning is for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Perhaps they're having to meet secretly or they're meeting in some war-torn region of the world. Lord, would we not take the grace of being able to meet like this for granted? Would we not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but continually consider how we might stir one another up to love and good works as we see the day of your return drawing near? But God, now as we turn to your word and consider this concept of family dysfunction in the life of Isaac and Rebekah, God, I pray that this time would not be crushing or condemning to anyone who hears but that you might use it to kindly open our eyes to ways that we have disregarded you in the life of our families. Lord, I confess before I say anything critical, I am a man who continues to need you to be critical with me, that I might repent of my own gospel forgetfulness, my own tendency to do what is right in my own eyes instead of looking to you for the instruction you give for the ordering of my life. Would you help me, Lord? And help all who realize that they are still quite prone to sinful dysfunction. If we are going to genuinely repent and change and be further sanctified in Christ, God, we need your spirit to facilitate that in us. We need your help. So would you help? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, um, family dysfunction tends to be a lot like modern drug commercials. You've seen them. Um, It's usually like a a bright, happy setting with some upbeat music, and, you know, it's got a couple together or a family, and they're, like, taking a stroll through the park or whatever. Everyone has huge smiles, and uh, they seem to be having just a great time. But the words of the narrator describing the ailment and the side effects of the medication are like, incredibly disturbing, right? Do you suffer from the sudden onset of explosive bowel syndrome? This medication is for you. Side effects may include your head blowing up, legs falling off, 
and growing teeth out of your eyeballs, right? So, so the commercial winds up feeling totally dissonant between what you're seeing and what's being said. In the same way, family dysfunction tends not to happen out in the open. The family tends to be all smiles in public, but what's happening behind closed doors can get quite messy. This is how it was in Isaac and Rebekah's family. God providentially, if you've read the story, God providentially gives Rebekah as a wife to Isaac. They're happy. Um, Eventually, Abraham dies. Um, It says that uh, he gave everything that he had to Isaac. It says, uh, on top of that, the Lord blesses Isaac, and Isaac becomes very wealthy, turns out. Um, Rebekah was barren like Sarah, but Isaac prays to the Lord on her behalf, and they have twins. So uh, everything really seems good externally. They, they have all that they could want. But then in chapter 27, you see this train wreck scenario of manipulation and deception in the inner workings of their family that becomes, uh, quite frankly, a perfect picture of what we do not want, right? So my, my plan today is simple. I want to give a kind of a, a basic definition of the main problem, and then I want to pull a, a few specifics out of our passage that will hopefully function as a lens for examining ourselves, and then I want to close by discussing how, uh, as Christians, uh, we can avoid this kind of thing. Okay, so uh, let's start with the definition, the big idea is this, that the sins of family dysfunction are the result of prioritizing our own vision for marriage and children over God's. Okay, The sins of family dysfunction are the result of prioritizing our own vision for marriage and children over God's. And really, you know, this is how you get any kind of dysfunction. God, in his wisdom has a right way for family to be done, for work to be done, for finances to be done, for church to be done, and so on and so forth. So when we decide that we don't particularly care about what God has to say regarding the things that he has made and and how to use them, dysfunction is going to be the result, right? That is, things are not going to work in a good way healthy way. Now, um, anyone who has read the Old Testament knows that this messed up nature of human sin and dysfunction, it continues all the way through uh, past Genesis. And, And in the book of Judges, there's a helpful summary statement of how people were often living. It says in Judges 17, 6, in those days there was no king in Israel, and thus everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I would lay before you, church, um, that this simple little phrase really is the source of all sinful dysfunction in our lives. Doing what is right in our own eyes. That is, going about operating with the default mindset of, I am perfectly capable of intuitively knowing and doing what's best for me. And while I'm I'm, I'm stating this, 
explicitly, you need to understand that um, usually this is not verbalized, right? We, we go about thinking, you know, acting like there's no need to consult scripture or more mature believers. We just kind of follow our hearts and think that we know what's best for us. And we don't say that. We don't say that's what we're doing, okay? Usually people don't come right out and say that they don't care what God has to say about whatever. We're too smart to say that. But here's the thing. There are tons of things that we would never say with our mouths that we communicate very clearly with our actions. We would never say that we are the highest authority in our own lives, but we communicate it when we don't read our Bibles and we don't allow anyone to hold us accountable. We would never say that we don't care about the Great Commission, but we communicate it when we don't share the gospel and when we don't give generously through the local church. We would never say that we don't care about God's design for marriage, but we communicate it when we marry someone who's not really following the Lord or when we don't ever discuss spiritual matters with our spouse. We would never say that we don't care about God's design for parenting, but we communicate it when we just go at it haphazardly and let screens parent our kids to keep them out of our hair, right? You see... Doing whatever is right in our own eyes is easy. It's easy because um, it's, it's just our most natural disposition as sinful people. You don't have to try to do it. It's just what you do when you're not trying to submit your life to the Lord. Okay, um, You just live like a practical atheist. Sure, maybe you do and say a lot of the right religious things. You go to church, say you'll pray for people, et cetera, et cetera. But when you leave, then Monday through Saturday, you ascribe to no objective standard. You live like the captain of your own destiny, and you just make things up as you go. And thus, you prioritize your own vision for your life over God's. And if and when you do this, inevitably, things start to get messy, and dysfunctional. See, because God is a God of order and of purpose and of intentionality. He has laid out for us the way that life works best for the sake of our joy and for the sake of our flourishing. So naturally, when we get off of that path, it's sin, and we're going to have problems. We're going to have problems. And we definitely see this in the life of Isaac and Rebecca, don't we, <laughs> within their family. And so let's talk about three ways that we see it. I've called these three things Isaac and Rebecca's recipe for family dysfunction. I don't uh, encourage you to repeat this recipe. We'll talk about that later on. Number one, here's the first thing. Here's the first part of it. Lack of biblical unity between husband and wife. Lack of biblical unity between husband and wife. Now, this is so clear in the text, right? Um, it, it doesn't take a Bible degree to see this. <clears throat> Isaac has his plan to bless Esau, his firstborn, as would have been the, the normal cultural custom of the day. 
But Rebecca determines that she is going to secretly thwart Isaac's plan by exploiting his blindness. Wow. Um, we'll, we'll talk some about why she did that in just a few minutes. But, but at this point, it doesn't really matter why she did it. It just matters that Isaac and Rebecca are clearly not on the same page regarding one of the most important matters of their life, their children, their children. This is one of the biggest contributors to sins of family dysfunction, husband and wife walking out of step with one another relationally and spiritually. Now, in all fairness, Isaac and Rebecca did not yet have the law And so they didn't have lots of super specific commands for how their marriage was to be ordered, but they would have had the oral tradition of Genesis 2 that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So so they would have known, they would have known that husband and wife were to have the most intimate covenantal bond that implied that whatever they did, they were to do it together as one in unity. No exceptions. This is how God designed and desires marriage to be. There's a Hebrew word for marital love pronounced dode. Some have articulated it as meaning a a mingling or an intertwining of souls. And so for Rebecca to not only disagree with Isaac, but to deceive him in order to see to it that her will was done in opposition to his, this is some manipulative stuff. Okay, It indicates a huge lack of biblical unity and its sin. And sadly, church, this is just just as much a problem today as it was 5,000 years ago. Sure, I, I doubt there are any wives in here who are dressing their kids. I mean, you're going to dress your kids up this week, I know. But you're probably not uh, dressing your kids up, disguising them as their siblings in order to trick your blind husband into misappropriating the firstborn blessing. Right? That's probably not. If that's happening, that's really weird. But anyway... Okay, um, but, but I'm certain, I'm certain that the essence of what happened here is still happening in marriages. I'm certain there are disagreements in parenting methods that are going unprayed about and unresolved. And arguments about finances, perhaps secret expenditures on things that are not agreed on together even maybe facilitated by separate bank accounts. Maybe there are even separate friend groups with conflicting beliefs and values that aid in the virtual living of separate lives. Husband off doing his thing, wife doing hers, only coming together at home like the passing of two ships in the night. Church, this is unbiblical. This is unbiblical. It ought not be like this. If you have committed to be one flesh, 
You ought to be one in all things. Husband and wife are to be unified. That doesn't mean they won't disagree at times. In fact, it's actually good if you disagree sometimes. Usually means you're being honest, and it reminds you that you're not always right. Somebody in here needs to hear that today. You're not always right. And your spouse is a gracious reminder to you of that. But anyway, unity between husband and wife does not mean that there are never disagreements. But when there are, they are to wrestle through it together, seeking the Lord's will and his word, and then coming together ultimately in agreement. Okay? And if you, if you can't do that, you may need some biblical counseling, perhaps. And guess what? That's okay, too. That's okay, too. Sometimes we need an outside perspective or a, a more mature believer to help us get a, a difficult thing worked out. But what you don't do is you don't leave conflicts unresolved. You don't sweep challenges under the rug. You do whatever it takes to be in unity. This is the person, if you're married... This is the person that you have committed to love and to forgive and to bear with unto death because of Jesus, all right? So a lack of unity is not okay. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul, speaking of uh, the marriage covenant, instructs believers to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, uh, this means, first and foremost, if you're a Christian, do not intentionally, knowingly marry a non-Christian. That's the plainest application of that verse. Uh, a yoke is a device that connects two animals by the neck, usually oxen, in order to pull a load or to plow a field together as a pair. Uh, so the reason that Paul says don't be unequally yoked is because just as you can imagine, it would be unproductive for two oxen to be pulling in different directions. Think about the implications for husband and wife. Two people bound together in the closest human relationship, pulling in two different directions, or perhaps at two different paces. I would say that while Paul is speaking specifically about how this would happen between a believer and a non-believer, it is possible for two believers to run into the same problem if they're not working intentionally to stay in sync with one another. Okay, Think of a three-legged race. <laughs> the goal is to be in lockstep because if you can run in unison, you can get to the finish line. But if you can't, you'll be falling all over the place. Have you seen people do that in a three-legged race? Just falling all over one another. This same thing is true with marriage. To be in prolonged disunity is sin that will inevitably lead to an unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship that does not honor God and that will eventually even make an impact on your children as well, okay, if, if you have them, all right? We see that with Isaac and Rebecca. So anyway, that's, that's the first ingredient in Isaac and Rebecca's unfortunate recipe. The second is shirked leadership and spurned submission. Shirked leadership and spurned submission. 
Uh, Honestly, this could be seen as an extension of the first point. Um, But in God's design for the family, we learn explicitly in uh, Ephesians 5, which uh, we covered just a couple of months ago, uh, that God gave men and women, husbands and wives, complementary roles. Okay, complementary roles. Okay, the husband, we find out, is to love and to lead his wife sacrificially, and the wife is to support and to submit to the husband's leadership respectfully. These roles are no indication of lesser or greater value or worth of men and women. This is just the way that God has designed for it to work. Uh, But because of mankind's fall into sin, this complementary nature of marriage is difficult to maintain. It's difficult to maintain. Um, And God tells Adam and Eve this in Genesis 3 as he's kind of outlining the repercussions for their sin. It says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Get this part. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I uh, commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. Right. So the, the Lord in Genesis three is explaining to Adam and Eve the often uh, marred dynamic of marriage. Instead of men lovingly leading, they will often fall into sinful passivity. And instead of women respectfully submitting, they'll often resent their husband's leadership and attempt to take it for themselves. Right? Uh, we saw this dynamic play out with uh, Abraham and Sarah last week, and we see it again today with Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, we don't see Isaac's passivity quite as explicitly as Rebecca's uh, power grabbing, right? But I would venture to say that this likely was not an isolated instance. This was probably a dynamic that uh, was ingrained here. But anyhow... Just as with all the other sinful tendencies that we've discussed thus far, this one too remains common. It remains common. Men, unfortunately, so often it begins with us. Abdicating our God-given duty to lead our families spiritually. Okay, We fail to lead and love our wives well by engaging them at the heart level, praying for them and serving them. And more often than not, it's because if we were honest, we would say that we've not been pursuing an abiding relationship with the Lord ourselves. And so since we're not growing spiritually, we know, maybe subconsciously, that we're not in any posture to lead anyone else, right? What a shame this is. Guys, we should not settle for this subpar excuse for biblical manhood. Okay, we're called to lead and to love our, our wives well. But as a result, our shirking of leadership responsibility has led to a lot of spurned submission on the part of wives who, because they don't see a man worth submitting to, they decide to try and take the reins for themselves. Now, ladies to whom this may be the case. I I know that there are nuances here that can vary. And so let me give you a few levels here. Um, To some, perhaps uh, you are a single mom 
or you're married to a man who is not a believer, in that case, I would encourage you to keep humbly leading where leadership is needed to the best of your ability and trust the Lord with that, okay? Uh, since otherwise, spiritual leadership will not come from anywhere else, okay? I, know, I understand that's a situation that happens. Uh, to some other ladies, maybe uh, your husband is young in his faith, or he's, he's still figuring out his leadership uh, of the home. I would encourage you, ladies, if that's the case, I would encourage you to encourage him to lead, Help him to see the opportunities and the needs that he may not be seeing without your graciously pointing it out. You're graciously pointing it out. You caught that part, right? Okay. <laughs> and still to other ladies, I must say, with all due respect, you are fighting your husband for a role that God has given to him not to you. And so let him lead your family without having to compete against you. You may be, you may be a stronger leader than him. You may know the Bible better than him. You may have been a believer longer than him. But none of those things changes the fact that the Lord has called him to lead your family with love, and for you to support and submit to him with respect. Okay. Uh, now I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you to not give your opinion when it's needed. I'm not telling you not to work collaboratively. As a man with a strong, godly wife, I often need her opinion. <laughs> I often need her opinion. We often collaborate. That's a huge part of having a helper. We need help, guys, right? Amen. Yes, we need help. I'm just reminding you that God has called your husband to lead and you to help, okay? Um, to attempt to usurp this order is not only to dishonor your husband, but to disregard God's design in favor of dysfunction, which is sin. Okay, um, Presbyterian pastor Walter uh, Chantry said it like this. He said, women continue to cringe before the divine mandate of submission to husbands. Desires to lead rather than follow recur. Temptations arise to take the dominant initiative in the family, to act as the head. But each instance of a wife failing to defer to the known wishes of her husband, unless those wishes oppose the moral law of God, subverts the divinely appointed order and multiplies misery in the earth. Okay. So, Isaac and Rebecca's recipe for family dysfunction. Lack of biblical unity between husband and wife. Shirked leadership and spurned submission, and finally, last but not least, the children, right? Children, doting instead of discipling, and leveraging instead of loving. Now, by, by picking up the story of Isaac and Rebekah in chapter 27 of Genesis, it may seem uh, <clears throat> a bit out of the blue and such a big mess, 
piles up. But actually, there is some foreshadowing and some inkling of a why behind Rebecca's deception of her husband, okay? In Genesis 25, verse 28, we're told that Isaac loved Esau <clears throat> because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So from early on, there was some favoritism that was happening with the twin brothers of Isaac and, <clears throat> sorry, the twin the sons of Isaac and Rebekah here. So Esau was kind of a, He's kind of portrayed as this kind of tough guy, man's man, right? Jacob says, he's hairy, right? And I'm smooth, um, which appealed to his dad, I guess. Jacob was uh, a bit of a, I mean, for lack of a better term, a mama's boy, okay, who tended to hang out inside. Um, And so when it came time to pass on the family blessing to the rightful heir, neither parent seemed to have sterling motivations. They were both skewed by personal preference. Sure, technically, the blessing would normally have gone to the firstborn, which is Esau. But as we read about Esau, what we learn is that he was not exactly living an upright life. He was disregarding his parents' wishes, taking multiple pagan wives for himself. He carelessly gave his birthright away to his brother in exchange for a bowl of soup. And yet his dad, Isaac, favored him because of his hunting skills that procured barbecue. Okay, I get it. Dads, we love barbecue. Don't, yeah. Don't let that be the reigning factor, okay? Um, it's, it's not quite as clear why Rebecca loved Jacob more, but perhaps it had to do with his temperament and his desire to spend more time with her than his brother did. But either way, this divided favoritism or love for one child over the other because of some aspect of their personality to the neglect of their character, this became problematic. This became problematic. And so as I've indicated, I think there are two ways that we continue to do this today. All right. First of all, we do this when we express our love for our kids by doting on them instead of discipling them. And this is kind of an antiquated term, I know, to dote on someone. It means to bestow excessive fondness or to kind of gush over someone as though they can really do no wrong. In parenting, we dote on our kids when we give all care and no correction. Don't get me wrong. We are certainly to love our kids. And as a man with four kids, all of them are special to me in their own ways. I love them dearly, and I think they're great. I understand I'm I'm biased, but I think they're great. But you know what else? I'm with them every day. (laughs) And I can attest that they're also all sinful in their own ways. And so it's my job as their dad not to simply magnify and reward the good things about them while ignoring the bad. If I truly love them, I'll discipline them when they need it, too. I'll address matters of the heart with them. And we have to read between the lines a little bit, but it seems like uh, Isaac praised Esau's skills 
over his character, doesn't it? Parents, if you do this, you praise your kids' skills over their character, um, you're going to do them a great disservice. And you're going to do the world a great disservice, too. Um, You're doing your kids a disservice if you do this because you're teaching them that their value is wrapped up in their performance and their athletic ability or their grades or their artistic skill or their appearance. And so if they're talented or smart or attractive, they're almost bound to be at least one of those, then they'll become arrogant. They'll become arrogant because you taught them that that's what mattered most as as opposed to their heart and their character. So you're doing your kids a disservice if you prioritize skill over character. You're also doing the world a disservice because arrogant people are loathsome, aren't they? They're loathsome to be around. They're difficult to get along with. Okay. Um, So this is why we're instructed throughout Scripture to disciple our kids, not dote on them. We'll get more into what that looks like in a few minutes. The other way uh, sinful favoritism in parenting can express itself is through leveraging as opposed to loving. Leveraging as opposed to loving. That is, instead of cherishing your kids just because they're your kids, that's what we should do, by the way. Cherish your kids because they're yours. That's why you cherish them, right? But instead of doing that, we value them sometimes for what they can do for us. That's leveraging, not loving. Leveraging is using something, or in this case, using someone for serving some end, right? When we leverage our kids instead of loving them, we basically teach them that They don't exist for God. They exist for us, right? You can see this in the way Rebecca talks to Jacob. He's concerned about being a pawn in her manipulative plan, but she just says, shh, don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just just do this for me. Sin for me, right? Again, this is often a performance-based way of parenting where we tie up heavy burdens for our kids to do well, and we're the ones who define well, right? We teach them that they live, they exist for our honor, for our glory, for our image. We want our kids to be great because we've made the way that we feel great however they perform, right? We, we live vicariously through them, if you will. This is idolatry. This is idolatry because it's treating our kids like objects instead of people, okay? So pretty dysfunctional, right? (laughs) I mean, I'm sure sure none none of us in this room would do any of this messed up stuff in the context of our families, Uh, but if we did, hypothetically, (laughs) how would we reverse it? and start going in the other direction of health instead. I'm glad you asked, because that's what I want to close with. First of all, let me give you the overarching thing, and then we'll move down into the details, right? The, The antidote, the antidote 
to the big sin of doing what's right in our own eyes is found in 2 Corinthians 5. It's the gospel. Surprise. (laughs) It's the gospel. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, there are multiple facets to the good news of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Okay. We sang about some of these things. When, he, when Jesus died on the cross, he became the propitiation for our sin, meaning his blood became the sacrificial payment that atoned for or covered over our sin, making us righteous and blameless before God. He also absorbed the wrath of God for us, all the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He, he took that on himself so that we wouldn't have to endure it in hell, separated from God for eternity, right? These things are at the heart of the gospel message. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus didn't just die to rescue us. He also died to redeem us. With the infinite value of his death, Jesus bought us back. He ransomed us out of the dominion of darkness, as it were, and he transferred us into the kingdom of light where we were created to live. And in the domain of darkness, what happens is, in sin and pride, people are living for themselves. Okay? People are living for themselves in the domain of darkness for self-gratification, self-exaltation. But as human beings made in God's image, We were not made to live for ourselves. We weren't made to live for ourselves. What a sad, puny purpose that would be. To just live for yourself over the 60 or maybe 80 years that you get. No, that's not what we're created for. We have been created for something much more glorious. To live for God in this life and for eternity. Okay, so... If family dysfunction happens as a result of prioritizing our own version, our own vision for marriage and children over God's, then the way to reverse that, the way to healthy, flourishing, redeemed, God-honoring family is for us to prioritize God's vision for marriage and children over our own. It's to stop living for ourselves and start living for him. So I gave you uh, three sinful dysfunctions. Let me give you three gospel reversals of family dysfunction. Number one, you ready? Hate your family. (laughs) Hate your family. Um, Luke 14, 26. This is Jesus' words, not mine. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You're like, uh, <laughs> have you read that one? Okay, <laughs> let me make this make sense for you. Um, when, when Jesus says that 
Um, in order to live for him, we have to hate our family. He's not using the word hate the way that our culture tends to use it. Um, to hate something for Jesus meant, this was a, a Semitic or Jewish expression that meant to love less, to love less. And so Jesus puts it out there right on the nose. If you want to live as you were created, you have to love him. God, most. You have to love God most. If you are a Christian, friend, nothing gets to be in front of Jesus in your life. Nothing gets to be above Jesus in your life. And we've already talked extensively about this, so I I think you'll see what I'm saying. When, When you elevate anything over Jesus, what you do is you make that thing an idol. And you wind up with disordered affections, which are going to lead to a dysfunctional life. Okay, So, as believers in Christ, we believe that in order to love our family the very best that we can, we need to love Jesus first and most. Okay, hope that makes sense. Hate your family. That's the first. (laughs) Hate your family. That's the first step. I mean, look it up in the Bible, friends. That's the first step to having a healthy Christian family. Love them less than Jesus. Love them less than Jesus. Put them behind Jesus and your priorities. Because Jesus is going to show you how to love them better than you could have ever loved them on your own. Okay. Hate your family. Number two. Conform each role to its divine model. Conform each role to its divine model. We touched on this earlier. Um, God has a right way for marriage and family to work. Okay, um, and, and behind each familial role is a model. Our earthly family is meant to be a reflection, a picture of something much bigger, much more grand than itself. Marriage is meant to be a reflection of the gospel. Remember our conversation about um, husbands leading and wives submitting earlier? Let's just go ahead and read this again, Ephesians 5. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This, let's skip ahead to 32. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Right? So the, so the deepest answer to why when it comes to our complementarian view of marriage, is the gospel. It's the gospel. Because husbands represent the husband, Christ. Okay? And wives represent the bride of Christ, the church. And when we strive to conform our marriage to this divine model, not only does it flourish, it becomes a witness, becomes a witness to the wisdom and the goodness of God and the gospel to the watching world. 
okay? When people, non-believing people see a godly marriage, they're seeing a picture of the gospel, right? Same is true about parenting, specifically fatherhood. In Hebrews chapter 12, speaking of God's loving discipline in our lives, verse 7 says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So you see, the reason we have sons and daughters is because God has sons and daughters. It's a reflection, okay? And, and our job as parents is to reflect to our kids the love of their heavenly father, okay? That's our job. Yes, we do that by providing for them, by caring for them, being affectionate, having fun with them, enjoying them, but also in discipling them, discipling them, lovingly correcting sin in their lives, disciplining them for their good, right? Okay, I could go further in that, but I don't have time. So finally, this is crucial to squashing family dysfunction. Maybe all of them could just fall into this one, okay? Follow and worship Jesus together. Follow and worship Jesus together. In Joshua 24, Joshua says this, we should be like Joshua. He says, as for us in our house, we will serve the Lord. So say that to your wife, guys. Say that to your kids, parents. But then don't just say it. And don't just get a trendy sign from Hobby Lobby that has that on it for $29.99 and hang it over your couch if you do that. That's cool. But actually do it. Do it. Deuteronomy 6, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Read God's word together. Sing hymns together. Pray together as a family. Talk to your kids, guys, about what it looks like in the day-to-day at school with their non-believing friends to stay committed to Jesus, right? Let them play sports or learn to play an instrument, and then focus on their character over and above their skill. Instill effort, commitment, teamwork, having a godly attitude whether they win or lose, perform perfectly or not. Model, Model repentance. Men, model repentance for your wife. Parents, model repentance for your kids. Say that you're sorry. Say that you're sorry. Ask for their forgiveness. And forgive yourself. Like you forgive them when you're wronged. Okay. Make your home a place where honesty and transparency is honored. Where sin is able to be confessed. Not where people feel like they have to cover it up. And fear, okay? If you want to reverse or guard against the sins of family dysfunction, 
follow and worship Jesus together. Follow and worship Jesus together. This is the way. C.S. Lewis, as always, says it so well. <laughs> so I'll put it in your notes because it's kind of a, sums the whole thing up. He says, God gave us family. And what a precious gift. But it is a gift, not the giver. Jesus will not allow himself to be demoted to high priest in the temple of family values. When we come to Christ, we leave that temple behind, never to return. And we spend the rest of our lives recruiting our families to worship Jesus. Let's pray. Father, oh, Lord, forgive me. I, I am a sinful man. I am a man who often has dysfunction in my own heart. So, God, I pray that this was a sufficient sermon today. This sermon did what you desire for it to do, Lord. The truth is we, we all continue to sin. We all continue to need forgiveness in the realm specifically of our families, God. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to address these dysfunctions with the gospel. God, first and foremost, I pray that we would, if we're living for ourselves still in some way, God, that we would repent of that and that we would begin to live for you. God, I pray that in light of how much we love you, it would be as though we hated our families, even though we love our families so well because we love you first. God, I pray that we would worship you and follow you with our families. Help us to do that, Lord. If we've not done that before, help us to seek others out who are doing it, that we might learn to do it, that we might fight against uh, this kind of sinful dysfunction in our lives. God, you have better for us. You have better for us than that. You have given us the right way for family to function. Help us to strive for that through your word, through discipleship, through the local church. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.